E2i Design is a full solutions provider for all things audio, video, lighting, and broadcast. Whether it be design, installation, or offering gear for a great price, E2i Design supports you by providing the right tools for the job. Look them up on Facebook or Instagram at E2i Design or visit their website, E2iDesign.com. Each year, one in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or another dementia. More than six million Americans are living with Alzheimer's. And in 2020, COVID-19 contributed to a 17% increase in Alzheimer's and dementia deaths. It kills more people than breast cancer and prostate cancer combined. In 2022, Alzheimer's and other dementias will cost the nation $321 billion. By 2050, these costs could rise to nearly $1 trillion. That's where you come in. The Walk to End Alzheimer's is an annual effort to raise awareness, defray costs, and and increase research funding of this deadly disease. Get involved by starting a walk team today. It's free and just might save a life. Find out more at alz.org. That's alz.org. Episode 303 of the Motor City HDJ podcast is a taste of history. The entire wedding and marriage experience is layered with various traditions we've always just done. We've never really given a second thought to things like something borrowed, something blue. Because they've always just been. So today I wanted to take a little deeper dive into the origins behind some of these long-standing wedding traditions. And I'm just going to tell you, I was quite surprised by some of them. Wanted to share my findings with you for this episode. Buckle up, we're going to do a history lesson today. And of course, E2i Design is the sponsor of this podcast. They are the masters of sound and lighting design for any size venue. Check them out on social media at E2i Design or their website, E2iDesign.com. Episode 303 of the Motor City HDJ podcast is a taste of history, and it starts right now. Well, surprise, it's me by myself again. I've got another solo episode for you today because... Well, the icky stuff was going around. And so my buddy Tom Neville of My Event DJs, he was so kind to let me know that he got sick. He was concerned and didn't want to get all of us sick over here with all that icky stuff going around. And so you're going to have to wait a little longer for my interview with him as uh, you know, as I was going to have him on as a guest to talk about his business, my event DJ. So we're going to put that on hold for a little bit and definitely appreciate him being a great friend and keeping us all healthy over here. So Tom, I just... As soon as you get back to 100%, I want to have you. We want to talk about my event DJs. And since I have an opportunity now, I want to update you on what's been going on with me. It's been three weeks since I played my first wedding of the year. Mary and Dale celebrated their wedding day at St. John's Resort on February 4th. And it was everything you would want the first wedding of the year to be. Truly such a great group of people. And I'm not just saying that. It's not just another hook to, you know, oh, every crowd is great. Well, yes and no. But Mary and Dale, their group was completely electric. The energy was there all night long. The dance floor was hopping all night. It was just something truly special for the first, uh, you know, event of the year. I'm so happy to have started my year celebrating with them. So congratulations again to Mary and Dale. And a big thank you to Taylor and Connor because they were there. Well, who are Taylor and Connor? Well, they were my first wedding of 2022 and why I celebrated with Mary and Dale. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't stress how important 
and powerful referrals really are. I've said it before, but the key to success in this industry is having someone at a wedding ask the couple, who is your, who's your guy or, or who's your gal? Can you get me their info? You know, as a DJ, you're doing it right if someone asks one or both of those questions at an event that you're playing. And so I'm just going to be candid with you. Because Mary and Dale were at Taylor and Connor's wedding, they saw me in action. I was lucky enough to get to celebrate with them too, which is a perfect segue to tell you all about Mackenzie and Aaron, who said yes to me in Motor City HDJ the day after I played at St. John's. Here I am name dropping all these clients, but because they talked with my previous clients, Lauren and Brett, of course, I love his name. Uh, I get to be a part of another amazing story in 2024. Same situation. I played Lauren and Brett's wedding, Mackenzie and Aaron. And I don't believe they were there, but they talked to previous clients. And because of that, I get to be part of their day. So a big thank you to Lauren and Brett for sharing the good news. The referral train keeps rolling along. My schedule is filling up and I could not be happier. So... Before we dive in, I, I want to tell you about three amazing guests I have lined up for some near future episodes. Of course, once Tom feels better, I'll have him on the show, hopefully to talk about his company, My Event DJs. I've also got my friend Kana Carnes Stallman. She's going to chat with me about her company, Ensemble Custom Floral. And then lastly, I'm going to sit down with my pal, Lindsay Dardis, and she's going to talk all about Hollyhock Design, her company that she just started not too long ago. And if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed, I would love for you to add this show to your rotation. No matter how you feel about it, I'd love for you to just rate me, let me know what you think, leave feedback to help me improve this show. With that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever actually sat down and thought about why you do the things the way that you do? Really, have you truly pondered the reason behind things you've done, things you've seen, things you've said, or maybe even have been part of all your life. I know that I've recently given great consideration to why I structure my event experiences the way I do, but I never really dove deep into why I've structured them that way. So in deciding on a topic for this episode, I came across several resources that called me to look into the origins of some very common wedding traditions. And you may know these stories, but I found them all fascinating. And while I get that history may not been, it's it wasn't always everybody's favorite subject back in school. I promise not to make this one too boring. I, I've done a history origins uh, episode before. One of my early episodes about the uh, the history of Veterans Day. And so there is a podcast. Uh, I don't know if he's still doing it. I know he's transitioned into doing other projects. But if you've ever watched Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs, he has a podcast or uh, I know I think it's a book or something called The Way I Heard It. And so I'm going to treat that. Um, I'm going to treat this episode here the way that I'm telling these stories, these origins, at least I'm going to treat that this way. It's going to be very narrative. And uh, I have written everything you're about to hear. So as far as compiling all this information, putting it together to be informative, uh, I want to definitely engage with you in that way. And I'm going to share it with you just like he would. And so uh, to kind of tease what I'm going to do, these are the, uh, the, the origins that I'm going to talk about and that you know, you're going to hear about here throughout this episode. Uh, some of them are a little longer than others. Uh, some of them are short snippets, but... Uh, definitely enough that we're going to learn something today. That's the that's the bottom line. So I will tell you all about the origins of proposing with a diamond engagement ring, uh, the origin of kneeling to propose, 
the origin of tying the knot of wearing a white wedding dress, covering the face or hair with a veil, holding wedding ceremonies, wearing wedding rings, removing the garter, tossing the bouquet, giving the bride something blue, breaking glass, having bridesmaids and groomsmen, and then finally serving a wedding cake. So, a taste of history, and here we go. Proposing with a diamond engagement ring. The history of engagement rings is fantastic. What we see today as symbols of love were symbols of love between the Romans and Egyptians in the 2nd century BC, perhaps just a mark of ownership. Like many modern practices, the origin of engagement rings can be traced back to ancient Rome. According to the Gemological Institute of America, GIA, Roman women wore rings made of ivory, flint, bone, copper, and iron. They were there, quote, to sign business contracts or to confirm mutual love and obedience. These newer and more durable materials have replaced the original reed and linen straps used by the ancient Egyptians. Gold rings and other gemstones were later found at the ruins of Pompeii, proving that buttery metals were a preferred material during this period. According to GIA, the engagement ring didn't take its official meaning until about 850 AD. Pope Nicholas I explained that gold was the most popular material for engagement rings, representing a man's intention to marry. According to the Cape Town Diamond Museum, the diamond was built in 1477 by Maximilian of Australia. It appeared on the engagement ring when the Archduke proposed to Mary of Burgundy. He did this with a stone set in the shape of the letter M. In the 15th century, engagement rings began to embody the intertwined symbol of unity we think of today. Gimel rings, consisting of three connected bands, became increasingly popular. The rings began as individual bands worn by each half of the engaged couple. The band was then joined with a third band, wedding ring as we know it, and worn by the new bride as a wedding ring set. Gimel rings continued into the Age of Enlightenment, while bouquet her rings were also circulated among engaged couples. These rings were intricately engraved on the inside of the band, hiding an inscription of love for poetry. The silver engagement ring was sometimes exchanged for a gold iteration ring during the wedding. The Archduke was the first to propose a diamond ring, but he wasn't a trendsetter. It wasn't until De Beers launched an advertising campaign in 1947 that diamond engagement rings became popular. Fueled by the slogan, Diamonds Are Forever, diamond engagement rings saw their first surge in popularity since they first appeared in the United States in the 1840s. Recent years have seen a shift in engagement ring preferences. Of course, diamonds are still a popular option. And still, more and more brides opt for rings made with colored stones and unique materials. I didn't know that. How about that? Even putting this together, proposing with a diamond engagement ring, I always thought uh, it didn't matter, but apparently there have been many different iterations over time. How about that? All right. So there you have it. Next up, kneeling to propose. The origin of the custom of a man proposing by getting down on one knee is unknown. It may be a nod to the medieval custom of knights kneeling before ladies. Others speculate that men did it as a symbol of surrendering their will and fortune to their beloved, and demonstrating to their family that they were not a threat, because it was a sign of surrender during feudal wars. Or 
it could be a result of the Persian custom of bowing to the ground to show respect. However, even though the tradition dates back centuries, kneeling to propose is more of a pop culture phenomenon and only became the norm for Westerners in the 1960s. That was a new one for me. I didn't, um, yeah, I didn't know that one either. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, I, I put all this together and um, obviously researched all this different stuff. And then as I'm writing it, you know, I kind of just write it and then put it together. But uh, wowzers, how about that? I mean, I guess I should have <laughs> should have read it ahead of time, but that's, uh, that's fantastic and, and fascinating. The origin of tying the knot. The knot symbolizes unity in many cultures, and people even physically tie the knot at a wedding ceremony to represent that unity. An ancient Celtic tradition in which one couple holds hands while the other couple ties their hands together with a string or ribbon. Customs depict that couples bonded physically and mentally to demonstrate their devotion to one another. The cord's color also stands for something. For instance, blue is associated with calmness, perseverance, dedication, and honesty. Therefore, if you want to perform this fast, research the wire colors and select one or two that hold special significance for you and your partner. Some historians say that couples used the handcuffing ceremony in the 18th century for one-and-a-half-year trial marriages. So, I'll pause right here with a personal note. If you've ever seen that show, Married at First Sight, this is very similar to that. Married at First Sight puts people together that have never met, and they actually don't meet until they get married. For the very first time, they do not meet except on their wedding day, right? So, the guys, you know, <laughs> he's standing there, she walks down the aisle, that's the first time that they meet. This is a little different here, but, um, you know, with that experiment, that show, I believe uh, it takes place over the course of eight weeks. This is a, a one and a half year trial marriage. So uh, very similar, but very interesting as well. The two live together as if they are married during this time. Once the process is over, they decide whether to stay together and formally marry or break up or divorce. Today, the traditional Irish Unitarian Universalist wedding ceremony includes the hand-tightening ritual, symbolizing unity. A physical knot is tied with a ribbon or cord in the modern method for each vow. This deed exemplifies a personal promise made by a couple that will never be broken. So, remember to store the handcuff cord after the ceremony so you can keep it as a wedding keepsake if you and your partner want to carry on this custom at your wedding. There are no synonyms, by the way, for the phrase tying the knot. The terms be a servant, get married, and walk the aisle all refer to getting married, but their origins are distinct. In Western conversation, tying the knot is very common, but weddings can also use these other terms. Yeah, that's that's a, another one for me too, tying the knot. I've actually seen a lot of people that do this uh, will use the cord ceremony of tying ropes together comes from the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes. A cord of three uh, strands is, is not easily broken. I believe it's Ecclesiastes. While that's not actually you know tying a knot, it's the rope thing and, and people do the rope thing um, or what have you during the ceremony. So very interesting. This one captivated me. I think you're going to like this one. The origin of wearing a white wedding dress. Most young women fantasizing about their wedding day envision walking down the aisle in a white gown. After all, white is traditional and many Southern brides adore a conventional wedding with blue or borrowed items on display. However, actual historians should be aware that brides did not always wear white. 
According to the Washington Post, no bride wanted to wear white to her wedding in the 17 and 1800s because the color was actually associated with mourning. Most brides didn't like wearing white, even though some daring brides, like Mary Queen of Scots in 1558, made bold fashion statements by wearing it. Instead, brides were more likely to wear red to their early church weddings, according to Time magazine. Rich brides, mainly from the aristocracy, would wear jewel-toned, fur-trimmed, gold and silver embroidered dresses in order to make a splash when they tied the knot. When Margaret of York attempted to enter the church at her wedding in 1468, her wedding dress was adorned with heirloom jewels, necessitating her being carried into the sanctuary. Dresses with extravagant decorations and bright colors represented wealth. Covering your dress in so many treasures is considered extreme that you must be carried down the aisle. Everything was changed by Queen Victoria, the royal who made Christmas trees famous and set a new standard for bridal fashion. Victoria was just 20 years old when she wed ruler Albert of Saxe-Coburg in 1840. She was serious about her position as queen and wanted her subjects to know this. She decided that the best way to convey that message would be through a wedding gown that was both practical and invisible. She stunned the entire world when she stepped out of the carriage at St. James's Palace in a plain white gown. Her choice to wear a wreath of orange blossoms and myrtle rather than a crown or tiara went well with the dress, which was made of white spun silk and satin, and it had lace accents. According to CNN, she had valid reasons for her choices. Like Kate Middleton, she wanted to wear only British-made clothing to raise awareness of the declining lace industry in Beer, Devon. She thought that white would be best for the delicate lace work. The second explanation was less pragmatic and more romantic. Instead of marrying Prince Albert as a queen, she wanted to do so as a woman who loved the man she was about to marry. Her innocence, purity, and common sense were all reflected in the dress. Because it was charming and conservative, the dress quickly became the go-to choice for stylish brides everywhere. According to that same Washington Post article, Godey's ladies' book, known as The Vogue of the Victorian World, decided, quote, that white is the most fitting hue for brides in 1849. Quote, she now yields to the chosen one, emblem of the purity and innocence of girlhood, it was noted. White is the color that brides prefer to wear on their wedding day because of Queen Victoria and Godey's Ladies Book. Wowzers. Talk about a social influencer. My goodness. One person. And she was how old? 20 years old? Unbelievable. All right. Well, there you have it. The origin of wearing a white wedding dress. Covering the face or hair with a veil. Back to Queen Victoria, well, she chose a long, sheer veil for her iconic wedding dress. Their pairing was part of women's fashion then and has evolved into one of the Western wedding customs still seen today. But Victoria wasn't the only veiled bride. For centuries, veils have been worn at weddings in many cultures and religions, including Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and Hinduism. The pale yellow veils worn by ancient Roman brides are said to resemble flames and represent light and warmth. Muslims often cover their faces as a sign of humility and to protect their brides from evil. According to the story that Jacob in the Bible was tricked into marrying Leah instead of Rachel, the Jewish bride wears a veil so the groom can be sure he is marrying the right person.
fascinating again. Look at that. You don't know until you read it, until you talk about it on a podcast. The next origin, holding wedding ceremonies. In the past, getting married was much less formal. In most cultures, it only required the consent of both parties, typically in the presence of witnesses. English couples demonstrated their consent during the Middle Ages by accepting a gift from one another. This ring-shaped object, we've already heard about that, was frequently referred to as a wed. The act of marrying two people was given the name wedding, which we still use today. In the 16th century, the Catholic Church made the sacrament of marriage a religious law, and many people still choose to get married in a church, Catholic or not, to this day. And personally, I'll just tell you, it doesn't matter. Uh, As long as you've got witnesses and people you love, let's have that ceremony anywhere you want to put it. So as far as holding your wedding ceremony, I'll be there, your guests will be there, whoever else is going to be there. But that is the origin of holding wedding ceremonies. So we've heard about uh, quite a few things that uh, are common to the wedding experience, including wearing wedding rings. That's the next one. The Egyptians are credited with starting the wedding custom of giving a beloved a ring. We've already talked about that with the engagement ring. The ring's circle, which has no beginning or end, represents eternity. This empty space in the middle is a gateway into the unknown. That's what they believed. Greeks adopted this custom when Alexander the Great conquered Egypt and made their own love rings with Eros and Cupid inscribed. The Romans kept up the ring tradition and made gold the right metal. They often added intricate carvings or gemstones to the rings. From then on, wedding rings came in various metals and stones, and their value varied depending on the couple's status and wealth. The ring was only worn by women for a long time, and, well, around World War I, men began to wear formal wedding rings. That's, un- that's unbelievable. At World War I, you would think you wouldn't want to have all of that on you, but I, I guess they did. They kept those rings on during the war. That's wild. Okay. Next, removing the garter. One of the earliest recorded wedding customs is to slip the bride's garter off, a traditional piece of clothing used to hold stockings before elastic was common. And then you toss it to a single person for luck. During the Dark Ages, it was regarded as luck and helpful to the newlyweds for guests to remove the bride's clothing and keep a piece after the ceremony. Later, evidence was also considered that the marriage had been legally binding. Fortunately, the custom has evolved to be less intrusive. Nowadays, the garter toss is often a part of the reception, and a garter is bought just for that, sometimes becoming an heirloom for the family. So that's the origin of the garter and removing the garter. I will say that in our social landscape, removing the garter is really, it's kind of phased out a little bit. Uh, you know, we want to be sensitive to everybody's needs socially. And so, you know, I, I never turn my nose if someone wants to include that in their wedding reception. But as far as removing the garter is concerned, it's one of those traditions that's kind of phasing its way out uh, and, and really just, um, you know, finding its way into history books. That's about it. So the other wedding reception tradition we would do is tossing the bouquet. And this custom, first documented in England in the 1700s, probably started earlier, but it also comes from the belief that having a piece of the bride's clothing was lucky. After the ceremony, single women would rush to the bride to touch her and remove some of her dress. The bride would throw the bouquet as a distraction and then run 
to avoid ruining her dress. Nowadays, we know the bride's time with her single friends before marriage is more important than ever. And really just throwing the bouquet is, is just something fun that we do at the wedding reception. Giving the bride something blue. You've heard the phrase, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. There's another part to that you never hear, which is, and a sixpence in your shoe. That's how the saying goes. So that list that I just read to you is a traditional list of things that a bride should have before getting married. One thing for each to help her cherish her loved ones, focus on the future, and remember her past. And, well, wait, why the blue? Well, the color is meant to protect the bride from the evil eye, a curse that could make her infertile and is also said to symbolize purity, love, and fidelity. The sixpence was an old English coin representing the couple's financial success. So that's where we get something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. It was, you know, most of these traditions are kind of based in, uh, I wouldn't say superstition, but just things that started that went through history. And that's where we get that, uh, you know, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Breaking glass. Many Jewish wedding customs can be seen in the modern wedding experience, even those that aren't of the Jewish faith. For instance, the bride and groom standing under a canopy in the Jewish faith would be known as the huppah. Additionally, the seven blessings are recited. However, the shattering of the glass is one custom that you may have heard of or seen on film. Or if you've been to a Jewish wedding, well, you might have seen it in person. The groom sometimes the couple even, stomp on a fabric-wrapped glass to conclude a Jewish wedding ceremony. The act serves as a solemn reminder of the Jewish people's suffering and a symbol for the destruction of Jerusalem's temple. But this custom of getting married can be interpreted in different ways. The Jewish wedding now says it can also be a promise to keep the marriage together and a reminder of how fragile relationships are. So there you go. The origin of breaking glass. I never knew that's, so I, I love history. I am a history buff. I, I didn't pay attention to history in school, but I love, 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 love history. So that's fascinating to me. I got a couple more here. Having bridesmaids and groomsmen, a wedding party. That is a tradition that had an origin and here it is. Having bridesmaids and groomsmen. And I would really love to tell you that this one had uh, a happy origin to it, but this custom dates back to darker, more violent times when potential brides were seen as property that rivals could take, steal, or even kill. There are records that people in ancient China and Rome had a group of women dressed in dresses the same color as the bride to act as decoys. Groomsmen, on the other hand, served as the groom's bodyguards. The best swordsman was usually the, quote, best man that we know. The Romans. As an example, they made the custom official by requiring a couple to have at least 10 witnesses in matching colors to certify their marriage. When she had her 12 bridesmaids wearing white gowns in the same length, Queen Victoria once again uh, set a more um, modern trend there. So bridesmaids and groomsmen actually comes out of something pretty dark, uh, interestingly enough. And I talked about this on another episode of the podcast, my year in review with, uh, you know, the numbers of the wedding party. You know, this tradition here uh, says at least um, 10 witnesses, right? I mean, that's a big wedding party. I mean, if you consider five on both sides, that's no problem. 
Obviously, 10 on each side would be a little bit too much, but how about that? How about the origin of that trend? That's that's crazy. Unbelievable. Finally, last one, serving a wedding cake. Without a grand confection as the centerpiece, what what kind of wedding is it really? And even if it's just a small cake to cut and cupcakes and all the other stuff. Um, the Roman custom, though, of crumbling a wheat biscuit over the bride's head to symbolize fertility may have been the basis for the practice of serving wedding food. That's right. Food altogether, not just cake. There was also a strange beginning to the traditional wedding cake. Now, according to a 1685 recipe, it was once a pie made with, listen to this, oysters, lamb testicles, sweetbreads, rooster comb, and pine kernels. What kind of, I mean, if there's anybody out there that wants to dare to that, <laughs> to make that recipe, woof, um, wow, I don't even, I don't even know that they would have that on a show like, uh, oh goodness, Fear Factor. No way. I wouldn't even do it. As far as foods go for the wedding, delicious foods have always gone hand in hand with the wedding experience, and each culture has developed unique wedding dishes. It is typically a layered, as far as the cake goes, a layered frosted cake in the West. Then you have croquembouche, a tower of filled cream puffs, which is a typical dish in France. I think I said that right. I hope I did. A sponge cake made with duck egg, lotus seed, or yellow green bean paste is known as a merry girl cake in China. Tiok, a colorful rice cake, is what Korean brides serve. In addition, the koravai, a multi-layered bread with intricate designs, is served at the wedding and prominently displayed in the church at Slavic weddings, which takes precedence over the cake in these ceremonies. How about that? All of these origins, I, you know, sometimes I look at what I do. Like I said in the open to this episode, I look at what I do and I really, I, I don't appreciate it because I don't know the history. I don't know the story. So hopefully just a few morsels. If you're still listening after all that time, bless your heart. Thanks for being with me for this one. I just figured, you know what? Got to fill some gaps. Uh, let's talk about our, our uh, history of our traditions. And uh, hopefully this taste of history is enough for you to get excited. Uh, if you're planning your own wedding, maybe this is enough to get you excited about uh, uh, the, the history and the origins of the things that you're incorporating within your wedding experience. Uh, I'm definitely glad that you tuned into this one. Thank you as always for listening to the podcast. Just remember, be kind, love each other. And until next time. Oh,